the healthcare providers and the, and the business people should can't work um, can't make decisions in isolation of each other, and they need a forum by which to come together and make those decisions. Dr. Robbins, Jared, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks, Griffin. I I appreciate you having us, uh, having me, join you. I'm excited to be here. Your motto could be, I'm not always the executive director of professional societies, but when I am, it's ASRM because I don't want to call you the most interesting guy, Jared, because I don't like I don't like inflating egos that much. But I think it bears a little bit of talking about on the show. You and I had dinner together in Atlanta and I got to learn a little bit about your life. And I was like, wow, this, he's like the Dos Equis guy. He's, he's, you know, he's said, oh, yeah, I used to live in Atlanta. Oh, yeah. What? When was that? Oh, back in the 80s when I was a firefighter. What? Oh, yeah, I was a firefighter for five years before I went to film school. What? And so let's can we tell people a little bit about your life before med school, before we get into um, your trajectory to ASRM? Sure. So I was uh, I um, did some fire, did some work as a mostly working as a paramedic with the fire department um, in, a, in a northern suburb of Atlanta. What brought and, you what brought you down there? Because you grew up in New York or Long Island? Yeah, I grew up on Long Island. Um, I always wanted to be a firefighter, paramedic, um, long wait to do such in the New York area. Um, was looking at schools in order to really in most fire departments in order to advance through the ranks. You had to have an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree, depending on how high you wanted to go in the ranks. I always wanted to be chief. You know, and so I knew I needed a bachelor's degree and I applied to schools. Emory was one of the schools that I applied to. The um, Firefighter Magazine was advertising heavily for fire departments in and around the Atlanta area. And so um, I applied and needed to pay for school also. I mean, I think that uh, that was a, a big a big concern for me is in order to go to a college, I had to pay for college. So, so you were a paramedic while you were at school? Correct. Okay. Yep. And, and the, why film school? Um, so I was, uh, I always had an interest in, in film and arts and, you know, I'm a creative thinker and, you know, I was going to college really for the degree more than for the knowledge. And so I thought I would do something that was going to be really fun. So I was a film studies major with a, the bio minor and, um, and then, you know, as kind of progressing through school decided, I think really through my experiences as a paramedic really decided that that um, medicine was going to the way was going to be the way I, I went. And so, you know, made sure I hit my medical school prereqs, but, um, you know, not really sure that that was the way I was going to go when I was when I started the application process, but wanted to make sure I had those prereqs in case I decided that that was uh, an avenue that I wanted to pursue. Did you ever end up working on any films or TV? Did uh, did some short, you know, some short school type programs, but never anything professionally, no. How did the transition to medicine happen? Um, really? Um, so, you know, had a strong interest in, in science. Um, and uh, so was taking some of those science classes along, you know, in school, made sure, like I said, I hit those prereqs. Um, I was in a fraternity as well. A lot of my fraternity brothers were taking the MCATs. My girlfriend at the time was studying for the MCATs. So I thought I would take the MCATs too, just see how I did and did well in the MCATs and just, you know, sort of almost out of fun, applied for to Emory and to State University of Stony Brook um, for, to see if I would get into medical school. And I did and had a long, you know, sort of inner conversation, you know, deciding, is this really what I wanted to do? Talk to my friends, my advisors, my parents. Um, you know, prayed on it a little bit and decided, you know what, I thought, let's go to medical school and see what happens. It doesn't mean I can't be a fireman in the end, um, but uh, let's see how medical school goes. So State University of New York at Stony Brook was uh, relatively inexpensive at the time. It's not anymore. But uh, and so I would be able to go there to school and not have to worry about taking out a whole bunch of loans. And so I went to medical school and, and I loved it. So that brought you back to Long Island and then uh, and then did the did you immediately do residency in OBGYN and then immediately subspecialize or was there time between yeah, no. being an OBGYN and subspecializing? So it's interesting. So obviously when I went to medical school, I thought I would I, at first I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, my interests were trauma and you know trauma surgery, uh, you know, and those sorts of things. And um 
you know, so I took my, you know, in medical school, for those that don't know, you do in your third year, you do what's called clerkships, where you essentially spend time on the wards um, in the different fields. And uh, knowing that I wanted to do surgery and OBGYN is a surgical subspecialty, and this is actually a common story among OBGYNs. Um, I scheduled my OBGYN rotation immediately before my surgical rotation, so I would have that surgical experience. I would be, I would feel like you know more confident when I walked into the OR to impress the surgeons. Um, and um, I, I loved OBGYN. I felt like there was a lot of um, so one of the things that OBGYN had that that surgery really didn't have is that idea of um, really being part of the, really developing a relationship with your with your patients, being part of the family. Um, and, and I really love that idea of having that, that, um, that closeness with your patients, with that ability to really impact, you know, someone's life over the course of their life. And so, um, but I also wanted to be a surgeon. And so, um, OBGYN really was the best of both of those worlds. You had that ability to, to, to be a doctor, you know, to be a part of their family as a doctor and to also, you know, be a surgeon and then reproductive endocrinology which was relatively new, you know, this is now 1990, early 1990s, so it's a relatively new field. And there's this, that ton of creativity kind of going back to those roots of I was a film studies major. Um, you know, there was that idea of being able to be creative and innovative and, and really thinking, you know, long-term about how to solve problems. And so I uh, re was really drawn to that reproductive endocrinology and making families what could be more fun and exciting and rewarding than building families and um, and at the same time being creative and innovative and um, being able to do surgery. And so it really, it was- really I often hear REIs that like surgery say that REI isn't enough surgery for them, that they miss surgery. Do you find that to be the case? So, you know, I think that uh, the, RI, the REI world has definitely changed a lot um, since the 1990s. We did a lot more medicine back in the 1990s. Um, you know, we- we were this, you know, we started laparoscopy, laparoscopic surgery in many ways. It was started by the REIs. And so a lot of that, you know, we now consider MIG surgeon, MIG surgery. It's, it was an offshoot of REI. I think that, um, you know, we've become very, we've become less surgical, surgically focused. A lot of the reproductive endocrinologists out of there, there's still a bunch of us that still do a lot of surgery though. Um, and so I think it's, you know, I think we as individuals have to sort of find our way. ASRM, um, through the uh, Society for Reproductive Surgeons actually has a, a surgical track, a surgical scholars track for reproductive endocrinology fellows. So those fellows that really do want to be more surgically involved can be part of that reproductive surgical tract. And, um, and, and, you know, these are programs that have higher volumes of surgery. So there is, a, so it is out there for a lot. I mean, my, my practice certainly became much less surgically heavy as I, as I got older. Well, it's a good thing for the fellows and residents to to learn about. If you're listening, if you've been on the show before and you're wondering, hey, Griffin didn't ask me that much about my backstory. Why not? I don't know. Go to film <laughs> school and be a fire department paramedic for a few years and and tell me about it at dinner sometime because I think it's interesting. So let's fast forward a bit uh, and and let's get to the position that you are that you now hold at ASRM, which is a full-time position as executive director for the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. And let's talk about how that came to be. So gosh, so um you know I um I went to business school. I uh, I graduated from Kellogg um with my MBA in 2020 and uh, was thinking about ways in which to really have an impact on uh, you know, on our health system. Um, really, my interest in in. Um, in Why did you decide to do the MBA? So I, I really wanted to learn to be more involved in um, healthcare operations, and I felt like um, doctor the the healthcare system is rapidly changing. You know, um, big health systems are not run by physicians; they're run by MBAs and attorneys. And, uh, and but why why an MBA and not an MHA then if it if it was healthcare operations that interested you yeah um I mean it's it's business it's really these big businesses that are are having such an impact on on our on the health system not just in reproductive technology but throughout the whole entire health system 
Um, for me, getting my MBA was just learning a language, right? I, I, I never had any business classes. Again, film studies major, right? We weren't, you know, we weren't looking at business classes. And so, um, you know, as a division chief, so I was division director of research and technology at Northwestern. And, you know, so much of my job was understanding business. And, you know, we all, Northwestern worked as a dyad. So it was a physician and a business person sharing the role of running these practices. And um, I, I really felt like there was a language that I didn't understand that, you know, medicine has its own language and we, we know that we, we, when we talk to patients, we have to remember that we have to re, you know, think in lay language, not, not thinking in medical language and business has its own language as well. And I just didn't need, I needed to know what that business language was in order to really be able to um, effectively run a practice. And when you so, say business language, what are you referring to? Financial modeling? What are financial you modeling, um, P&L sheets, even in marketing. I mean, there's just a whole, you know, the way in which the, the way in which people spoke was very business oriented, right? It had its own focus. Um, you know, when, you know, when, when they're talking about the price setting and the, and the, and the economic the economic modeling behind that. And when, when we're dealing with insurance companies and, you know, talking about how, you know, to negotiate and all of that was stuff that I had really never learned. I was a terrible negotiator. I took three, three courses and, you know, I took 12 negotiation credits at business school. Um, I think that was really important to understand that. And really in, in looking at the system, even how to do things like how to affect change, how to, how to lead up, you know, these are all business concepts that physicians really never learn. And so I really felt if I was going to be effective at um, at changing the way the health system is, that there needed to be more doctors involved in that. And in order to be at the table, we needed to know the language. Um, and because, you know, we were being told as physicians by these um, health care business um, practitioners that you know, we should stay in our lane. You do the you do the doctoring, and we'll do the operations. Um, but I felt like how can how can they do the operations if they don't really understand what we do? And so they really needed to have that physician voice at the table. And and until we understood the language, we wouldn't get that voice. And so really, I I was like going to language school for me to go to business school. Were there any um, other physicians in your class at Kellogg at that time? So Kellogg actually has an interesting program. Um, so first of all, there's a lot of business. There's a, so the executive health program um, has a bunch of doctors in it. Um, and then they also have a joint MBA residency program with a couple of, uh, with a couple of the um, residency programs at, at Northwestern. Um, I wasn't in any of those. I, because I really didn't know anything about business, I felt really like a blank slate. I wanted to do a traditional MBA school. So, um, you know, Kellogg was like, are you sure you want to do this? You don't want to be in the executive program. You know, you're kind of old. And um, and I said, no, I really want to do a traditional program. So I actually did what they call the managers program, which is a part-time evening and weekends program where um, it's typically young managers. The average age in the class is around 27. I was definitely the oldest by far. Um, I didn't have any other doctors, although after I joined the program, a couple of doctors joined, a couple of young doctors joined behind me. Um, so, but it was not a program that was aimed at physicians. It was really aimed at managers. And, and so for me, it was really getting that basics. I mean, basic accounting, right? Financial accounting and managerial accounting, just sort of those, those real basics that they may not have covered as in depth in the more senior program. I want to talk about how that led you to ASRM, but I yeah. do think right. it's interesting enough for the audience to sidebar for a moment on the type of negotiation they taught you at Kellogg, because from what I've Come, Kellogg seems to be the a, a greater proponent or perhaps a louder proponent of anchoring in negotiation, whereas mo, very often negotiation schools and, and teachers in negotiation will say, never say the first number, never oh, give oh. the number first. And uh, I, I've done both in my career a lot, and I see that there are uses for uh, each yeah. tactic. Um, but generally speaking, I think it does make sense to say the first number uh, in many cases. Uh, what were you taught there? Yeah, so Kellogg definitely is um, about, first of all, win-win, win-win, win-win negotiations, right? I mean, that's a big 
um, belief in the Kellogg community is that your negotiations should always be win-win. Um, but but they do focus a lot on anchoring. I think that you do, you know, I think anchoring is important because it sets the tone of the negotiation. But, you know, the fear of anchoring is that you could, you could anchor yourself out of a negotiation as well, right? If you, you know, if you think, all right, I'm going to anchor high because I know we're going to settle somewhere in the middle, you got to make sure you're not too high because that can just, you know, anchor yourself out. And so I think that anchoring is definitely a big focus of, uh, you know, and and being the first to make a to make an offer, I think, is often a really good strategy. It doesn't always work, and you know, in, in in a lot of like I said, I took twelve credits. I took a bunch of negotiate negotiation classes. Um, you know, it doesn't always. You don't always want to be the first to anchor. There are definitely um, situations where you where that may work against you. But um, you know, I think that they, there is definitely a focus on making that first offer and making it realistic. Negotiation is interesting because you have so much to gain in a negotiation. You know, when mm-hmm. you go and buy, if you go and buy a car, you buy a house, you buy a mattress, it doesn't matter. Just by asking, sometimes one question can save you hundreds of mm-hmm. dollars, thousands of dollars. You and and you couldn't make that money in that in in a 10 second time frame doing anything else. And that's what makes negotiation so valuable. And and then on the other end of the spectrum is that sometimes uh it's negotiation can just really hamper speed and say you want to you want to get out of there and so anchoring does have to do with with that sometimes sometimes you don't it it ties back to value-based pricing too right let's let's use an example outside of medicine so that we're not putting anybody on this spot but let's pretend we're a web development agency and we we are a niche agency for financial institutions. If if we're just selling website development, then we're being commoditized against every other web developer. That's an area where we actually do want to do value-based pricing because we want to see how many more loans do you want to sell? How many more uh, how many how many more credit card applications do you want to bring on because we know how to increase those by x percent. And so you would want you you do want to do value based pricing, and you may you you probably don't want to anchor in a situation like that because you you want to see what it's really worth to that person because you're going to help them get a certain amount of outcome. And then there's other times where you just want to move as quickly as possible, and uh, or or not as quickly as possible, but you but it is better just to have a good position. Say this is what the price is. Either you want it, you don't, and you can move through engagements more rapidly. Do you have a view on, yeah, on when know, it should be used? So I think you know to kind of bring it back to to kind of the question as to how I got to SRM, you know, or what you know what did my MBA teach me that brought me to SRM? I think that what you know negotiations to me was more was not only learning about how to you know work your way through a, a dealings. It's you know. In order to be to be good at negotiations, you have to ask good questions of your of the person with whom you're you're working, and that brings you back to that whole idea of values, like what, what's important to you, um, you know, where you know, under, you know, really understanding where what what is what's critical to them in that in their need, um, so that you can make your offer, you know, to to fit that what that value structure is, and. So it's for me, negotiations was about how to ask good questions about person's values and what's important to them and, and you know, and where their, you know, where their needs are. And that's what I feel like I have to do a lot at SRM. Like, you know, my goal is to create value for our members. And, and that's about, you know, I don't want to say that I'm negotiating with them because I don't, it's not like, you know, it's, again, it, it is that idea of a win-win, but you know, it's about understanding where their needs are and what and and um and what their values are and developing programming and, and value based on those needs. Depends on how semantic we're being, right? If expansive enough a definition, everything's a, a negotiation. But tell exactly. me about the win-win concept and um what did you learn there at, at Kellogg and and how do you think you're into how do you think you're using that principle in your position at ASRM, the win-win concept of negotiation? Yeah, um, I think that, um, again, I think we have a very diverse membership that, you know, very interesting and diverse membership. And we, you know, we need to make sure we're, we're 
fitting a lot of different needs, right, at ASRAM. You know, it's, we're not just an organization of physicians. We're, you know, we're an organization that's actually 50% of us are physicians. And the remainder of the organization are business people and, um, you know, nurses, embryologists, mental health professionals, um, genetic counselors. I and mean, we have this diverse group of people and we need to be really, you know, make sure that we're fitting everyone's needs. And so, and, and you know, and with limited resources. And so there is definitely that negotiation among, you know, I have to negotiate with my, with my, uh, with my executive team as to, you know, what is going to be the next thing that we do. I have to negotiate with our, with our, um, with the board, right. To, to make sure that we're, you know, that we're, you know, fitting everyone's needs and, um, and, you know, and with members who are, you know, when, when, you know, who, who want things done now, or, you know, what is, uh, you know, who, who we, you know, to develop the right programming. I think that there's, there's, op- there's lots of opportunities for negotiation, but, um, you know, we definitely, do, I don't want to see any of that negotiation as adversarial, right? I think that we, you know, my job is to, is for everyone to, to get with their, with, to, to meet everyone's needs here at ASRAM, right? And so, um, definitely thinking about ways in which to try to, uh, you know, accomplish that with, again, limited resources, limited time, small staff. I want to talk about what you're trying to accomplish, given those considerations in wrapping up this uh, this negotiation side segue. Did Kellogg teach you all to use the word fair early and often? I forget where I picked that up, but I find that it is it's perhaps even more for me than it is for the other person using the word fair when I'm talking to some, do you find this to be fair? Do you, would you agree that this is fair? I, when I do that, it makes me scrutinize yeah. my interests more. Is, okay. Is this really, is, is the other party really going to gain from this? And, um, and then I'm also detaching from something where if it just isn't a good fit for me that we part ways friends. And uh, so I find it really, really useful. Did that come up at all? Yeah, definitely. Again, values, that idea of win-win, fairness, um, using the term, is this fair, is something that we definitely do a lot at Kellogg. So so I'm getting how like you had this interest for really figuring out how the healthcare system works, not not just your fertility practice, but like really getting a handle on how healthcare works and that it, it's inseparable from business in many ways. And in order to understand that language, you had to get your MBA and that gave you uh, a foundation for being able to run ASRM and being able to, to bring in this, this win-win sense from uh, of negotiation and, and problem solving. But how did like, but how did like it actually be the ASRM position? So the ASRM position was available. Um, you know, ASRM is an organization I've been involved in over 20 years. I think that um, it has a great opportunity to have, you know, a strong impact on the field of women's health and men, and not just the women's health organization. Let me back that up and say on reproductive health, um, both for men and women. And from an education, education standpoint, from an advocacy standpoint, from a research standpoint, but like it really, ASRAM encompasses everything that, that um, has been important to me um, as I've moved through my career as a reproductive endocrinologist. And so given the opportunity to lead an organization that, that has such breadth and reach um, was, uh, was just an, was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. I'm really excited to, to be here. Uh, it's been eight months now, um, drinking from the fire hose, really learning the, about the organization from the inside. Um, you know, I think that, uh, I, I mean, I, I've known the organization, I've been part, been a part of this organization and a leader in this organization for a long time, but um, being on this side of the curtain um, has really been uh, been eye-opening in terms of just opportunities and creation of opportunities. And um, it's been really fun. It's been a great, it's been a great eight months. I'm hoping that it's a lot longer. Um, and, uh, and we'll see some of the fruits of that, of that work as we get to our annual meeting in a couple of weeks. 
And so everyone listening knows you're not doing this remotely from Chicago. You moved down to Birmingham. I did. I'm, I happen to be in Chicago today because I'm going to be at a Chicago meeting tomorrow. But um, but yeah, I, I moved to Birmingham and uh, I'm living, you know, our headquarters are in Washington, D.C., but we have administrative offices and campus in Birmingham as well. And, um, you know, because of the fact that that our, so much of our operations happen out of Birmingham, I felt it was important to be closer to those people. And so I'm living in Birmingham now. I, I want to hear about the fire hose that you're drinking out of, but I uh, but uh, this could be interesting ASRM history because I bet you most people don't know. How did ASRM end up being headquartered in Birmingham, Alabama? Yeah, just we had a um, we had a, a, a leader, you know, a CMO that was part of UAB. And so um, that's how that's how it became. Part of Birmingham, Birmingham history, yeah. Was this the inception of the society or years so, after? So ASRM has actually been around since the, the mid-1940s, um, but uh, but the, the headquarters was actually, you know, it, it, it rotated from sort of president to president and, you know, before it became, you know, before it became established, you know, with a full staff and, you um, but when it when it finally got headquartered, when it finally they bought a building in the 1970s um, in in Birmingham, so it was that building that that started it, sort of headquartered there. Little, little some you you know you sponsors that do all of these little events for trivia night. Go ahead and stick that one in there for your for your. Uh, I've got night. I've a whole ASRM trivia um, <laughs> that I can provide that I do with our board. Oh, we'll do. We should do a whole episode on on ASRM trivia. Uh, somebody would somebody would sponsor it. Anyway, let's let's talk about. Let you, you said you you know you're drinking from the the firehouse, which is the in the case of many leadership positions, and certainly one with a society's large as ASRM. What what are the things that you're like getting your hands around right now? Yeah. So you know, I think that um, obviously. You know, we have a. I had to learn a lot about 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 our budget, about our endowments. Um, so that was a that was learning a lot. I learned a lot about you know where the money goes. Um, so that was that was certainly something we can talk about. Um, I, you know, focusing on our meeting coming up, really how the meeting is run. You know, I think that we all go to this meeting. I've been going. I've been at this meeting every year for almost the last twenty years, and. Um, and the meeting just it just happens, right? I mean, we we have no idea when we're attending this meeting the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes to get, to make this meeting happen, um, the the numbers of vendors that we that we have that are necessary in order to make sure the meeting runs properly, um, from the electronics to the lighting to, you know, to staffing the rooms. I mean, it's just there's so much that goes on in running this meeting, and I had just had no idea how how just how much there was and how hard these people work. In order to really, you know, the, the ASRM staff is just unbelievable when it comes to meet, you know, when it comes to running this meeting. And, you know, the entire staff is, act, is actually at this meeting, um, making sure that it runs smoothly. And um, so, you know, I, I, I suggested changes, as you know, because you're involved in some of these changes at this meeting. And to make these happen, I was like, oh, this will be so easy. Let's just do that. Let's just do this. And, you know, the dominoes that that suggestion created in, in order to make it happen. And, and the staff did. I mean, you know, I came in with this idea that I wasn't going to make any changes because I really just wanted to learn the organization. You know, I came in at the time when it was sort of at the end of the planning of the meeting in January because um, the meeting is planned 18 months in advance. And, um, and I was like, oh, but, you know, we should really have more of this at the meeting and we should really do this at the meeting. And, you know, my staff was like, all right, well, we're just going to listen to this crazy guy and make these things happen. And um, and I think that, uh, you know, learning what what actually took to make these small, what seemed to me to be small changes happen was um, was amazing. And uh, I'm so lucky to have this incredible staff that I work with every day. I want to talk about a couple of those. Let's, let's you said we could talk about where where the money goes. So where does the money go, Jared? Yeah, so you know we we have um, we have a lot of endowments, right? So um, a big focus of our money is the research institute, right? We have um, we've established the research institute. It was established in 2019 um, by committee, um, and um, and that um, and that is to put that the the purpose for the research institute is to make sure we're getting pro projects funded that wouldn't be funded through traditional funding mechanisms. So you know, stem cell research. We know we can't get funded through um, 
through the NIH or, you know, we, we're trying to do nursing research. Um, we have, you know, funds set aside for that. I mean, really, you know, things that are very relevant to our field that are going to move our field forward, but wouldn't get funded through traditional funding mechanisms. This year, we're giving over, you know, over a million. I want to say it's close to a million and a half, but, but I don't want to overstate the truth. But it's definitely over a million dollars in grants this year. And so a large part of our endowment, you know, when you look at how much money we have, you know, a large part of that is committed to the research institute um, in order to make sure that we could do that funding. And in order to really have that endowment fully funded, we need a whole lot more money. Um, right now, our, you know, we're, we're trying to only use, you know, interest generated from the Research Institute in order so that we don't have to touch the endowment, but we all know what's happening in the financial world right now. And so, you know, our endowment is certainly not going to last if the market doesn't turn around. Um, you know, another big part of our endowment is the um, Center for Policy and Leadership that, um, that recently launched. We're really, we're pushing the launch the Center for Policy and Leadership at the at the annual meeting this year. And that is a nonpartisan think tank, right? We know that reproductive policy happens and um, and there are a few think tanks out there that are um, that are helping to inform our policymakers and the public about what the implications of these poli of the of developing this this policy and law. Uh, we, you know, a lot of them are biased. Um, and, and these think tanks and a lot and none of them are really run by reproductive uh, medicine specialists. And so we have put together a the Center for Policy and Leadership through the ASRM to be a nonpartisan you know think tank um, to help um, provide um, policymakers with data. Um, I think the the per, the example that we're that that they're focusing on a lot now, um, is just is uh, data to access to care. So we, you know, the we're helping the military to develop an access to care policy for reproductive medicine. And you know, our one of the white papers that we put out is what would that cost the government in order to do that. So again, so this non-partisan, just information research developing concept. Um, and so that's you know that that's a lot of where the endowments go. We we have some educational endowments. So, you know, this money isn't just available for us to use. When we look at our endowment, we have about two and a half times our operating budget in undeclared funds, but that's fairly modest for an organization of our size. Um, you know, the rest of that, the rest of that, the, the money that we have sort of as our, as our, you know, money in the bank, they're committed endowments. So, um, you know, people have donated the, the, that money for specific purposes, and we really can't touch that except for the purposes for which they're you know, have been, have been endowed. Do the endowment, does the, do the endowments just come from donor funds? They also come from sponsor funds. How does that work? Yeah. So some sponsored funds, some donor funds, it's all, it's donated money, right? We're a, we're a 5013C organization. And so um, it's, you know, money that's been donated um, to ASRM for, for these purposes. So, but it does like, when a company gets a, a big booth or does a, a Ruby sponsorship at ASRM, does that ever go to the endowment? Does that go to OpEx for, is it earmarked yeah. for the event? How does that work? Yeah, so the funds that we raise, say at the, at the expo at ASRM, that, that's all going towards operating funds. So you, you talked a little bit about um, the things that, that you want to do. And you did the research Institute was established in 2019 before you, you there's also the, the center for policy leadership. Uh, but you also said that I want to start doing some things at ASRM and your staff said, okay, we'll listen to the crazy guy and do what he wants yep. to do. Now I know what a couple of those things are yep. because, uh, you know, the ASRM med talks, for example, mm -hmm. um, business of medicine, uh, there's probably others that I don't know about. So let's, mm -hmm. let, why don't we start with those two? Uh, tell us what's going on. Yeah, so let's talk about ASRM Med Talks. Um, one of the criticisms I've heard in my years of as an ASRM member is that we should have, you know, some some my, some some small clinical talks. Right? Let's let's focus on what can we do clinically. And um, so what we conceived of was these short macro learning, this, you know, short talks, 15 minute lectures on a clinical topic. I wish I had them in front of me. I, that would have been really smart to have for this meeting. So one of them is like disasters in the, in the IVF 
center, right? So we have someone is going to talk about um, how to prepare your lab, you know, your, to, to protect your cryopreserved tissues in, in the case of a disaster. We're going to talk about, um, you know, the um, what, how, how Kara Goldman is going to talk about how she responded to Hurricane Sandy at, at NYU when they had to worry about, you know, protecting their tissues. And so we're going to do these short 15 minute talks um, that, that cross over the different specialties, right? So we're going to have maybe a talk from our urology group, uh, talk from our reproductive endocrinology group, and maybe a talk from the nurses, you know, so that we're covering all the areas. I'm giving a talk on how to use messaging to engage patients and staff. Right. So I could have helped you out. I could have thrown you a bone there. One of our topics is uh, is actually how to improve patient engagement. And so you're going to be talking about patient engagement. We're talking um, the urology group in that same lecture group is going to talk about um, when, you know, appropriate referrals to the urologist and how, to, how the urology and the REI should partner to, you know, improve patient engagement in that fashion. So again, so that way we, we have a business person, we have a urologist, you know, we're, we're trying to cross over. Um, I think in that same group, um, we have a talk on, on um, the use of EMR, for instance, I think in that group as well. And so, you know, this, this idea, the EMR portal, so this this whole idea of how you know we want to be we wanted a group of talks that are clinically oriented but that span the whole society so that the, our business people our medical people and our nurses for instance can get together hear a group of talks and that would spark conversation about ways in which we could practice better and that was really the idea behind the med talks is you know is to create just to create a conversation um, where everyone is where all the different areas of our field are able to get together and hear a series of talks that that can that really can can interest all of them um, and spark conversations. Sparking conversations is right next to where the med talks are going to be in the exhibit hall. We've developed a networking lounge. Um, again, one of the one of the concerns and complaints about ASRM is that um, there's no place to just network with people. You know, there's there's often like chairs or tables set up in the in the hallways but not a really good you know those could often be taken you know if you want to sit down with a group of like-minded people there wasn't really a good place to do that at the meeting and networking when we when we poll people about what their um, what the value they get out of the meeting a big part of that is networking and that's why it was so important for us to be back in person this year because you know the online meetings were great from a content perspective but it missed that idea of being able to just network with your colleagues and so this year at the meeting, we've established a networking lounge. Um, that networking lounge is, will have some, some programming there. So we're gonna do, for example, meet the editors. So you have an opportunity to get together with the editors in an informal setting. Um, but the whole idea is it's, it'll be a place for us to be able to, to sit down and, and talk and network with each other. Um, without having to go searching for a place somewhere in the convention center. You know, if you wanted to get a group together, you can say, you know, meet us in the networking lounge at 1030. Um, and, um, and I think that that um, is sitting right next to these med talks. So you'll be able to, if, if, you know, we just had a really great talk, let's all go chat about it now. You know, let's, we're, you know, we're going to talk about it at the business of medicine session too. So we did create a business of medicine session, the, our association for reproductive managers of which Griff, is a, a member. I think it's. I think you're on the board, right? Mm -hmm. uh, is a board member uh, of that organization. Um, a really important organization to ASRM. It's, you know, it's a group of managers of IVF programs and of REI programs. And um, we turned to to Arm and said we need to we need to have more business at this meeting. That, you know, I think one of the things that we hear often is that our physicians, and again, I could speak personally about this, don't have an opportunity to learn much about the, the business of medicine. Um, and we um, we have a lot of business people that come to the meeting. We want to make sure we're creating value for them as well. And so we're, this year, we're doing two sessions on the business of medicine. Griff is involved in, in both of them. We're doing a, a TED Talk session um, for five hours, for five sessions, rather, five TED Talks. I think it's five TED Talks. Might be three TED Talks. Um, we're doing a group of TED Talks. <laughs> My God, 
We're doing a group of TED Talks um, on the business of medicine on Monday. So with question and answer sessions, we have some excellent speakers that are coming um, to give those TED Talks. And then the following day, so that's Monday. And then on Tuesday, we're doing a CEO fireside chat that Griffin's going to be moderating for us, where um, you have an opportunity to talk to. We have representatives from a variety of different types of practices from private equity to physician owned to academic practices and in private-demic and private-demic practices and we're going to talk about um how we how what the what the similarities are and differences are and and really give an opportunity for people to ask questions of these leaders in the second half of that session we're going to do an open a brainstorming session about how to create a business of medicine track today SRAM. Um, so really trying to engage our members to tell us what do you want, right? I mean, I think, you know, I can sit down and, and figure out what I think you want, but, uh, but more importantly, we want to sit down and hear from you. Say, what do you want in learning about business of medicine so that in 2023, we can, re we can have a real business of medicine track at our meeting. I want to introduce uh philosophical question for that I think will be useful as people come to show up and give feedback on the business of medicine track. I'm interested in what you think about it. I remember years before I ever got involved, before I ever worked in healthcare, one of, one of my more hippie cousins, you know, we we're sitting around and said, healthcare shouldn't be a business, man. You know, my, my family who leans a certain way, you know, I'll nod it. And, and, uh -huh. uh, and I remember thinking, but, but, but how can that be? And I think that attitude still prevails a little bit, even in our field. And in many cases, I don't think it's useful. But, but the, the first one, the, the first is, is that it, how could, how could it not be a business? It's in it, there, there are craftsmen and craftswomen, there, there are people that are providing services, and there is a race to constantly improve and and provide advantages and and by nature that is business and uh so how could you ever totally remove it and the second one is how much harm are we doing when we pretend that it that it isn't entire because we want to we want to we want to we want to make sure that the tone is right and and we do have uh, the providers certainly have a responsibility to patients. Patients have a certain set of rights and those have to be protected, but I don't, I don't see it as being useful to say that it isn't a business. I, I'd see that as being disingenuous, almost like, uh, you know, abstinent, you know, it's, it's, it's a hundred percent abstinence on sex because sex is, sex can be dangerous. It sure can, but, uh, but pretending that, people aren't doing it often leads to, to all kinds of perversions. So what is your view on the role of, of, of how much business in medicine should be constrained versus should be facilitated in some way like this? Look, there's all kinds of philosophies about how, you know, about how we should, how medicine should be. Um, I, I don't, I don't want to wax philosophical about that. I think right now in the world of, We've talked about endocrinology, whether you're in the US or abroad, and ASRM is an international society, um, it is a business. And, um, you know, I think whether, whether that is a government run business or it's a private equity run business or it's a physician owned business, um, there's, we, we have to, you know, we, we have an obligation. To, we, I think we do as physicians have an obligation to meet the needs of our patients, but we have to do that in a way that, that it's, you know, economically feasible um, in order to in, to achieve that. And I think that um, the business of medicine is changing um, over time. You know, I think that um, the, that we need to understand as physicians and not even just as physicians, as a society, we need to understand that um, we have to understand, we have to negotiate I come back to negotiations. We have to be able to negotiate negotiate with our insurance industry, and we have to be able to negotiate with our um, with our media providers, right? With our with the people whom we're going to buy our band aids from. Um, you know, I think that there there are there are needs that we have as a group of um, you know of of providers in order to in order to be able to give the best quality care, which is what we all want. 
right? I don't care what type of practice you're in, our ultimate goal is that we want to give the best quality of care to our patients. We have to figure out a way to do that without, you know, with, with still being able to make a living and keep our, and, you know, we all have employees. I mean, as I have nurses, you know, we have nurses that, that work for us and embryologists and, you know, cleaning people that are, that we need to make sure clean our rooms. I mean, I think everyone is equally important and we need to make sure that we can stay solvent and the way in which to do that is changing dramatically. And um, as a society, we need to understand that um, in order to make sure that we can keep our practices afloat. And that's what we want to make sure ASRM is providing value to help us to do that. Um, as that business of medicine changes, we we will continue to evolve. I think that, you know, that idea of evolving our, as a society is really, really important to make sure that we're constantly meeting the needs of our of our members. And I think right now the needs of our members are to understand how to do better business. It, maybe it's always been a, a business, right? In the 19th century, somebody still made the bleakers, right? Sure. Uh, 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 so it was just all business was smaller back yeah. then. And some businesses have gotten so good at, at providing certain needs, whether it be entertainment or food, that the frontier really is medicine. As human beings, we don't want to die and we don't want mm -hmm. to get sick. And medicine is the is what allows us to constantly push the limit of those two otherwise natural limits. And, and so the, the, the things that contribute to that, and you, you said, you know, it's, it's a fact in reproductive medicine. I, I think it's, it's, a, medicine. it's a fact in all medicine, whether it's single payer, whether it's public right. payer, there, how many companies are in Israel alone right now working on artificial intelligence? Yeah. They're, they're not, they're not doing it just for they're doing it as part of because they know that by innovating this way that's going to give them a competitive advantage the people that create laparoscopic technologies it improves the quality of healthcare they're doing it because it's going to give them a competitive advantage and so too for systems like engaged md that didn't exist 10 years ago improves the quality of the experience for patients right. and it and it and and it's a value for them to enter the marketplace. But what constraints, Jared, need to be in place to say, okay, you guys aren't running the show. And I think it, during COVID, we saw pharma companies take a little bit of, it's like doctors eventually had to say, so it's like, all right, slow down. Like, okay, once we look at the research, then we'll tell you it's safe. You're, you, you're telling us it's safe early. Like we'll agree or we won't, but, but it's us that make the call. So what constraints need to be in place so that it isn't just businesses manipulating uh, the, the system, for lack of a better word? Yeah, that's a really hard question. I think that, um, you know, I think societies like, uh, like the American Society of Reproductive Medicine um, is a great, um, could provide a really great vehicle by which people to bring people together to have those conversations. Right. I think that, um, well, let's you, know, you and I have the conversation now. You mean about where, what, I don't know. Yeah. What those, I think the constraints are going to be really situational. Right. I think that, um, I don't think that, um, you know, I think that we need to make sure we're, again, we're meeting everyone's needs. Right. And so, um, you know, I think COVID was a really, COVID was a unique and really difficult situation where we were getting where we were getting lots of different inputs of information, and not everyone was getting that same information, and there was a ton of misinformation. And so, right, I think that the I think ultimately it should be again. I think the physicians and the health the healthcare providers should control healthcare, right? And it shouldn't be a bunch of attorneys and business people that necessarily tell us how to take care of patients. Um, but we need the input of everybody, right? We need the input of the, of the health. That's where that dyad, if it would work, would really be a good dyad where you have a healthcare provider and a business person sort of working together. I think that neither one of those, the healthcare providers and the, and the business people should, can't work, um, can't make decisions in isolation of each other. And they need a forum by which to come together and make those decisions. I think that, you know, the government also had, there were biases in the government and COVID was incredibly politicized. 
And so, you know, what I think is what I think the con I don't I wouldn't say constraints. I think it's about decision making and and being you know intelligent and decision makers, and having a a, a buy a not a, a nonpartisan like an unbiased forum like our Center for Policy of Leadership, being a place where we can bring those leaders together to have conversations because you know I think that. Um, that none of those groups should be able to work in isolation of each other. I'm I'm going through this same, oh, I don't know, exercise, I guess you would say, because I, I want to expand inside reproductive health beyond the podcast mm -hmm. that it's been. And, and it's, it has been serving as a trade media outlet. So I want to make it more of a trade media outlet, like a Wall Street Journal for the fertility sure. field. And that means I've been working on the sponsorship structure, the advertiser structure. I haven't had many i've had very few advertisers on because i don't i don't want to do an endorsement for most people i simply can't so i couldn't sell advertisers until i came up with an advertising structure but now the audience is there and and i'm i'm ready to do that but uh i've I'm putting in the policy like we have editorial control it it, mm -hmm. we're going to cover the news that's at mergers acquisitions layoffs lawsuits things sometimes it's going to be flattering for businesses Sometimes it's not going to be flattering for businesses and you get editorial control over a featured content piece where it says sponsored featured content and nothing else. You don't get to tell me not to write about these other folks or um, and I know that we're probably going to write some things about sponsors that aren't great for oh, this company sponsors. And then they just laid off 500 people uh, that that's, but, but so that's one constraint that I, that I view. Is there any place that you think like we should have no industry side industry side in quotes representation in this part of ASRM or in this type of policy? I, I, I don't know. I have to, I'd have to think about that more. I, I nothing really, honestly, I feel like, um, Disclosure is the key there, right? I think that when when there is industry sponsorship, um, that that conflict should be disclosed. But I feel that um, industry is a big part of our organization, and you know, and a big part of our of our field. And you know, I enjoy talking to the industry and learning from them um, from that business perspective. Do I think that they, you know, industry should be teaching physicians how to practice? You know, no. I mean, I think there's a bias there. Um, but I do think that, you you know, we learn a lot even when we get, you know, our industry, um, you know, salespeople come tell us about a product. And so, you know, I do think that, you know, as long as that disclosure is there and people have the ability to, to you know, to hear the, the that um, that perspective with the understanding that it's a biased perspective, it's a sales oriented perspective. Well, this is a great question for you then, and then I'll let you conclude how you want to conclude, but is, is the scope for disclosures too narrow, Jared? Because I don't remember if it was ASRM or PCRS or both, but I had in my disclosure, in my speaker disclosure, I own a client services firm called Fertility Bridge. I'm a paid endorser of Engaged MD. I just felt like people should know those things. Mm -hmm. And it was either ASRM or PCRS or both that said, take that out of your slide. You don't, you don't need that. It's just, it's just if you're, uh, if you're related to pharma. And I think as I, I'll, hi, if you want me to take it out, I'll take it out. But I, I still tell people in the talk, yeah. I, I, because I think they should know. I think they should know any financial interest yeah. that I have. So is our is our disclosure system or our rubric too limited in scope? So our um, so we follow the rules that are set out by the ACCME, right? And so that so our disclosure is for our particular. Well, are, are there are there rules? Maybe I do think it, that that you know I think it's important to know. I mean, if you're not talking about something that you know you're you that relates to engaged MD as you mentioned, then you know, then maybe it's not as important for me to know that. But uh, I, I think it's important to know um, those disclosures. Um, you know, and, and one of the questions that we ask is, you know, are is, is you, are you going to discuss anything that is involving one of your conflicts of interest, essentially? Um, right. I mean, that is part of the disclosure. So it may be that they asked you to take it out just because the answer to that question was no. But um, but uh, but yeah, I do think that being aware of of educators, speakers, um, conflicts of interest is important because it creates both a, cre a bias 
that's both conscious and unconscious, right? I mean, if, you know, I think that unconscious bias is something we really need to think about. I want to let you conclude, and I'm gonna re- I'm gonna work hard to make sure that this episode comes out before the ASR meeting. Especially, you spent you spent half the episode talking about the meeting, so I want to. Uh, we, we might be able to squeak it out the week before, which would be perfect timing. Uh, and knowing that the majority of our audience are members of ASRM, uh, how do you want to conclude either about the, the meeting to come or just what you'd like to see from them in the coming year? Yeah. So let me say, first of all, thank you um, for allowing me to be on. Definitely. I thought we were going to talk only about the meeting. So this is really fun. Um, to sort of talk to, to, to wax more philosophically around a, a number of different items and topics. Um, I do think that um, I, what I do want people to know about the meeting is that we do have a bunch of new things in the meeting. We talked a little bit about the networking lounge. We talked about the business medicine track that I think is really important. Um, we, um, we are doing things to try to appeal to younger members and to create, to creating um, greater values. So, we are having an electronic poster hall this year, so no more printing of the posters. That's all going to be electronic, and um, we'll see how that works. Like flat um, screens? Flat screens, yep. Um, flat screen poster presentations. Everyone's going to have a, a specific time to present, so you're not just standing there for an hour, um, waiting, hoping that someone's going to find interest in your poster. Smaller groups of poster presentations, but... But also we're going to have the posters are, are going to be available throughout the meeting. So if, for instance, you go to the, you are scrolling through the posters and you see my poster. I don't really have a poster, so that won't happen. But, you know, you see a poster from Dr. Robbins or whatever, and you want to speak to that person, you can contact him through the app and uh, and say, all right, you know, I, I like to speak to you about your poster. Can we meet in the networking lounge and, and chat about it? Um, so that is hopefully going to change the way in which we view our posters. Um, and we, we're going to get feedback from that at this meeting and, and continue to adjust that for the next for next year's meeting. We are doing um, one of the big value that our organization provides, I think, is through our special interest groups. And um, only 50% of members are, are part of a special interest group. And so we are trying to highlight the special interest groups by doing a what we're calling our all-in reception. And that is going to be on Monday night. Um, where we're high, where we're going to have our special interest groups and our professional groups and our um, affiliate societies all present, sort of as a career fair where you get to go around and talk to people about the different special interests and find a place that you might, um, you know, create more value for yourself in our organization. Um, we're doing. We talked about ASRM trivia. We are doing um, what we call live Q boost. Um, QBoost is a product that we've had available for ASRM for a while now. Um, it's a just-in-time, just-in-time microlearning platform where you get a question sent to your email every day, um, and then you get to answer that question. It tells you if you're right or wrong, and then gives you links and other information um, around that question. Yes, my turning off did not work. Notifications. Um, so, so, um, so, QBoost is this microlearning platform. You get um, opportunities. You get a daily email which is sent to your inbox. You get to answer the question. It tells you if you're right or wrong. Um, if it's if you're wrong answering that question, it goes back into that question bank for you, and you'll get asked that question again um, later. And then it gives you a bunch of of links to further information about that question, in, in addition to a brief uh, summary. Um, so in Cubus has been available. It's not many of our members are really aware that Cubus is out there. So we're actually going to do live Cubus this year, um, where we're going to it's going to be trivia. Um, you're, we're going to do it as a big trivia contest, five to ten questions, and with prizes. So um, really trying to promote that educational opportunity. And then the last thing I just wanted to mention it is Camp ASRM. So again, in trying to appeal to young to young families, um, again, we, we're all about building families and we wanna make sure that we're um, you know, supporting our families. And one of the biggest challenges, I think, to coming to the meeting for many young families is, their, um, is having childcare. So this year we're sponsoring Camp ASRM, where um, we That's have- That's a big deal, I didn't know about that. Yeah, and, and uh, we've been advertising and advertising and people keep telling me they don't know about it. So Well, they'll, they'll know about it when they, is, is it going to be at the convention center? Is it going to be? At the, it's actually going to be in the hotel, in the I think, in the Hilton, um, because we didn't have room. We have, with all of our new, 
with all of the new offerings at, at our meeting, we didn't have any space for it at the meeting itself, but we will be marketing it at, at the meeting it as well. Uh, but we want people to know about it so that, you know, if, if one of the reasons they're not coming to the meeting, I mean, the meeting's in Anaheim, it's across the street from Disney, you know, come to the meeting, bring your kids, put them in camp ASRM, and at the end of the meeting, head over to Disney with them or spend an extra day before or after the meeting and, you know, go over to to, um, to Disney. And I wonder if Disneyland be, being there will mean more people staying through Wednesday. You know how a lot of people often leave mm-hmm. Tuesday or they'll leave yeah. Wednesday morning or I wonder if if Disneyland being there means more people staying through Wednesday because they want to take the rest of the week with their family at Disneyland. Uh, but yeah. that's a, you know, they, in 2020, I was like, how much are in-person events going to come back? Uh, and I said, you know, I think that there's always going to be a need for them. They'll have to be redone in different ways than how they were done previously. And you're coming back to to in, in, a, in a big oh, way this is like rocky this is like you're like rocky four with in-person events jerry you're like you're coming back in a big way um well so this episode we will make sure that it airs beforehand Thank and you. uh you, part of the reason why you know you're covering so much is because you have so much to cover and there was just so much inter- there was interesting side rabbit holes for for <laughs> me to go down i hope the audience agrees uh but uh everyone uh will be able to hear this episode before the meeting and, and it should be in, in great time dr jared robbins executive director of the asrm thank you very much for coming on inside reproductive health griffin thank you so much for having me you've been listening to the inside reproductive health podcast with griffin jones If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.